morning. Hey, uh, I, um, you know, uh, back in the 1980s, it may have been the beginning of the 90s, one of the big Spanish publishing houses commissioned uh, a new set of commentaries, Old Testament and New Testament. And, um, and, and it was going to be different because it was going to be, it wasn't going to be translated from English. It was going to be written by um, uh, native Spanish speakers. Uh, and so we, the, the commentary started. I got, I mean, I was the only non-Hispanic that got to write in the commentary. But I got first, second, third John. And uh, I got, I got, you know, I'm really excited. Some of the, some of them actually got published, published, published. But when I got through two chapters of my commentary, when the, when the publishing house suddenly canceled the whole series. So I said, you know, I wonder if I didn't write a, a comment, a, a um, introduction to First John. So I went back and got that out. And I know this is the last. Uh, the last message in First John, but I'm going to give an introduction to First John. Is some of the stuff that I wrote back back in the, the late 80s. You know, John is the only apostle who lived to an old age, and he died of natural causes, probably in Ephesus, where he wrote his three epistles. Now, the fact that he was not killed at an early age by the Jews, by the Romans, or some other enemy of the gospel you know, gives him a an interesting and unique perspective on the church. You know, it was the end of the first century, and when John wrote his epistles, a minimum of 50 years had passed since the church began at the day of Pentecost. You know, that was enough time for problems to enter into the church. The same type of problems that we have today. The same type of problems that our ancestors faced years ago. The same type of problems that I can guarantee you that the people who follow us are going to, are going to face also. So that means that John's writings are extremely important, extremely relevant, and very practical for us. Now, You'll notice immediately something that, that uh, I, I noticed, that the tone of 1 John is like a shepherd to his flock. 1 John 2.1, my little children. Mm. My little children. That includes you and me. And, uh, and it has its difficult parts, its didactic parts, but the flavor above all is pastoral. Now, one of the tasks of a shepherd leader is to guard the flock. And that's what John is doing here. He was guarding the flock. For this reason, I, 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 maybe, maybe other reasons, it's sort of difficult to outline for second and third John. I made a feeble attempt, and believe me, it was feeble. But, um, and another thing you'll notice in John, John speaks in black and white. You know, uh, that's why Nathan said last week, I didn't say this, John did. You know, he's not, he wasn't going to take the, take the hit on that. He gave it to John. And, you know, John doesn't mince words. Now, those of you who speak Spanish, you know that we have a great phrase for not mincing words. No habla con pelos en la lengua. He doesn't speak with hairs on his tongue. Isn't that a great phrase? He doesn't speak with hairs on his tongue. 
We live in a day of apologies, excuses, justifications, and exceptions. John would not have tolerated that. It's another reason why this letter is so relevant to us as it was to the first century readers. Now, he gives us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You know, when watch, I, I read a book by Watchman Nee, and he, he contrasts the ministries of John, Peter, and Paul by using what they were doing when they were called by Jesus. He says, Peter, he was called as a fisherman, casting nets into the sea, Matthew 4. The work of being a fisher of men is a characteristic of his ministry. He was given the keys to the kingdom of God, Matthew 16, and he used those keys on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 fish were caught in the gospel nets. What about Paul? When he was called, he was making tents. He built things. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, he's called a skilled master builder. The Lord gave Paul the great task of writing most of the fundamental theological truths of the Christian faith. Then there was John, who we're studying today. When he was called, he was mending nets. Matthew 4. John was a mender or a fixer. Apostasy, false teaching had entered the church, and people were just confused. Some were doubting even even their salvation. There was a need for someone to call the church back to the fundamental doctrines. So the Lord gave this ministry to the Apostle John to fix the doctrine. I call him John the Fixer. Now, John also states the reasons why he wrote the book. It's very clear. Number one, joy. We are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. So, if you lack joy, you want some of your joy, read First John. Holiness. I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So if you're struggling with sin, read First John. And discernment. I write these things to you, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. First John 2.26. Discernment. Is this contemporary or what? And if you're wondering about a relative who's in a strange group, read First John. Remember, John doesn't speak with hairs on his tongue. Assurance of salvation. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And if you're struggling with knowing if you are indeed saved, read First John. So, Background of the book is Gnosticism. There it is. I'll admit, when I was in theological seminary and any one of my, my professors mentioned Gnosticism, my mind drifted off into another world and I started thinking about baseball. And, uh, however, Gnosticism was the most damaging cult for the first three centuries, and it has raised its ugly head again recently. In Asia, early Christian writers identify Serentius as a false teacher advocating Gnosticism. Now, John, this, this is, I've read it in several places. John was at a bathhouse without bathing when he found out that Serentius was also there, and he exclaimed, let us fly. 
lest even the bathhouse fall down upon us, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. That's how serious they took Gnosticism. Gnosticism is derived from the Greek gnosis, which just means knowledge. At the core of all versions of Gnosticism is the idea that only through attaining a secret knowledge can people find their salvation and overcome the material world. It was very mystical. It really was. It's like spending a weekend in Sedona, Arizona. It was really mystical. Sedona, the New Age, you know, yeah. The basis of their error was that the physical material is evil. That's what they said. But the spirit is pure and good. The human body being evil, being matter, is evil. The human spirit, being eternally good, cannot be affected by what one does in the body. Now, just think about how many sins that could lead to. The Gnostic way of salvation was through a special knowledge or special light, not by knowing Jesus as Savior. Thus, at the beginning of the book, John says, God, I think he probably said it that way. I've always said God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Spiritual excellence, according to them, did not consist in living a holy life, but I possessing a superior knowledge. And it's set up in the churches, as it does today, haves and haves nots. And, you know, and I, I was looking back at the church I grew up. Some had a certain experience, some didn't. And the ones who didn't, they were looked at as second-class citizens. Gnosticism. Knowledge, according to the Gnostics, makes Christ not so much a savior, but one who came to reveal a secret gnosis or knowledge to a privileged few. Now, to inquire this new light, if it might mean breaking a commandment or two or even sinning, eh, so much the better. As an all wrong doctrine, this offers a shortcut, a mystical one. That did not include obedience to the word of God. Now, if you're ever offered a shortcut to spirituality that bypasses the word of God or spending time in the word, it's time to read First John. <laughs> you know, I had a friend that got into one of these special knowledge groups. And he came back, hadn't seen him for months. He left, you know, came back and he was, he was different. He was so full of love. But he looked down upon the rest of us because we didn't get that special knowledge. It turned out that he got involved in a full-blown cult. Now, if they didn't pass John's three marks to be a real Christian. Now, this is your test for the day. Nathan mentioned three marks last week. They were, number one, belief. Number two, you know, obedience. Hey, you know, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. Number three, love. You got it. There, there are the three tests. I think we can go home now. I mean, anyway. <laughs> you know, and I, I had, I noticed in, in my, um, the thing that I wrote, I used three different phrases. I used the theological test, who Jesus was, the social test. Did they or not love other Christians? 
And in, in fact, they actually looked down on those who didn't possess the special light. And then they failed also the moral test. They lived in sin. Sin was a way of life. Now, one of John's antidotes is to have a correct knowledge of who God really is. Can I say that again? <laughs> a correct knowledge of who God really is. You know, you know, and that's why you, you see in several places, God is love, John says. God is light. For years, I secretly thought that God had favorites and I wasn't one of them. My wife kept bombarding me with verses that show God has no favorites. Can't list them all, but I'm even going to give you one that she gave to me. Romans 2.11. For God does not show favoritism. So, there, there are many other conclusions that people arrive at when they don't have a correct idea who God is. Some, some have to do with God's love. Like, a loving God wouldn't fill in the blanks. He wouldn't. Surely the good things that I do would make up for my sins. Now, we'll probably deal with some of these questions in the new year. But, but uh, the Gnostics thought that they could live in fellowship with God and live however they wanted to at the same time. Now, we live in a world of opinions. As Christians, we live with the facts. We live in a world of relative ideas. But as Christians, we live on absolutes. We live in a world of uncertainty, but as Christians, we are fixed on certainties. We live in a world of lies, half-truths, and exaggerations, but as Christians, we live by the truth. We live in a world dominated by Satan, but as Christians, we live with the power and the presence of God. Now, we put all that together, we base our lives on what God has said in the Scripture and absolute truth. Divine truth revealed by God to us. John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that's why when we go through 1 John, the word know is used 39 times. 39 times. And in, in, in uh, eight times in chapter 5, and particularly the passage that we're going to look at this morning, verses 18 to 21. Verse 18 begins with, we know. Verse 19 begins with, we know. And verse 20, and we know. John ends really with a summation of why he wrote that we might know the one who is true. Now, throughout the, epi- uh, the, the epistle, as we've said, there are, there are, there are tests. Uh, the doctrinal test. What do we believe about Jesus? The moral test. Do we live a holy life? The social test. Do we love the brethren? To determine the genuineness of someone's salvation. And, and when we know, as he said in first John, chapter 1, verse 4, that when we know those things, our joy is made full. You know, it is so comforting to know for sure and not be confused. So, consistent with his purpose in writing, John sums up his epistle with a review of certainties. We know that we have eternal life, verse 13. I write these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. Second, and this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we not only can know that we have eternal life, we can know that our prayers are answered because we have direct access to the throne of God. Now, we come to our passage this morning. That was quite an introduction, I'll have to admit. Um, we, you know, we know, we know, and we know. Okay, what is verses 18 to 21? Let's read them. We know, 1 John 5, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that. And he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one cannot touch him, does not touch him. We're going to talk about that. And we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Then we and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, three things we can know for certain. Number one, we know that the real Christian does not keep on sinning. No one born of God with a new nature who has been transformed and regenerated goes on sinning as an unbroken pattern of life. I want to read 1 John 5.18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. This is the ESV. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, there has been a misinterpretation of these verses, saying that Christians can get to the place that they no longer sin. After all, he says, and this is from the New American Standard, no one who lives in him sins, 1 John 3, 6. And that no one who is born of God sins, 1 John 5, 18. Based on these verses, hmm, someone could reason, sin's a thing of the past. If you commit a sin, it's proof that you're not saved, because Christians do not sin. But that's not what he's teaching. We know that because of what he says in other places. Look at this in 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So, we're all sinners. We continue to struggle with sin, even after we're saved. And we will never, there will never be a total absence of sin until we're with the Lord in glory. Listen to this. But when we know that when He, Christ, appears, we shall be like Him. That's the day. I had a fellow tell me once that he said, you know, I haven't sinned in the last seven years. I said, can I talk to your wife about that? (laughs) Now, is John referring to what we sometimes call sinless perfection? What does it mean that believers do not continue to sin? Very simply, he means that believers will not continue practicing sin as a way of life. I'm going to read the NLT here in 1 John 5.18. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. The thief who was characterized by his theft is a thief no longer. He has a different way of life, Ephesians 4. The adulterer who was characterized by his immorality is an adulterer no more. 
His behavior patterns have changed. The child of God, who was a former thief, may still struggle with covetousness, and you may not want to make him the treasure of the church, but he he no longer lives according to a pattern of stealing. The child of God, who was a former adulterer, may still struggle with certain desires, but he is broken free from that old life of immorality. 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, let's go back to 1 John 5, 18. This time, read it in one of our favorite translations, the Amplified. We know with confidence that anyone born of God does not habitually sin. But he, Jesus, who was born of God, carefully protects, keeps and protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. The word habitually here is the key. A believer can struggle with sin and sometimes give in, but giving in to sin is no longer normative. As we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, you can find that in Second Peter 3, we are being sanctified and we are being led by the Spirit. And we will walk more and more in obedience to the word of God. Now, if a person claims to be a Christian, but lives in open defiance to God's word, then that person is showing the church and the world that he's not really saved. No one who continues to live in willful sin knows God. Because habitual sin is incompatible with the new life in Christ. Living in unrepentant idolatry, falsehood, thievery, homosexuality is proof that the Spirit of God has not yet taken root in that person's heart, regardless of what he says. Now, when I was growing up, uh, I mean, I was grew up in this area ever since I was born. There was a, there was a church about a mile away, and the pastor of that church, his trade was being a thief. At night, he would break into houses and steal things, you know. And uh, he was a pastor of a church. But you know, you cannot you cannot have that as a characteristic of your life and be a church a real children of child of God. Now, God, John gives us two reasons why believers do not continue to sin. Number one, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning for God's son holds them securely. That's number one. And the second one is, and the evil one cannot touch them. The, the son of God holds us secure so the devil cannot touch us. Now, most translations here in this passage use the word touch. There are a few that say cannot harm. A couple that say cannot hurt. One said cannot get his hands on him. Another said take hold of him. Now, what does it mean here? Uh, does it mean that we don't have to con- be concerned about the devil? You know, not at all. He's powerful and he's looking. We know in First Peter 5, he's looking for someone to devour. But Jesus protects us. John explains why the Christian will not be defeated by sin. Jesus Christ holds them securely. He protects, has the idea of guarding a prisoner like we see in Matthew 27. Christ protects us so that the devil, the evil one, cannot touch. That's a key word here. What does it mean to touch the believer? We need to study this in Greek, and uh, it means to fasten on to. 
to hold on or to subject one. We see it used in several other passages, but one is in John 20, 17, where Jesus said, do not cling. That's the Greek word. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So, this does not refer to just touching something. There's another word that means touching like like this, and it's in 1 John 1, 1, another Greek word. We proclaim to you who existed from the beginning whom we have heard and seen. We have seen him with our own eyes and touched him, there it is, with our own hands. He is the word of life. Here it means just to touch the subject. What we're talking about now, any football fans here, you know, do you remember Barry Sanders? Remember any any highlights What of his long runs? I mean, they would touch him, but they couldn't bring him down. He would go right, left, through, up, Bring that. That's the idea I think we got here in the word touch. Thank you, Barry Sanders. The closest thing we have to that today is playing for the 49ers. The devil is evil, and there's a lot he can do. I mean, he can harass us, he can threaten us, he can tempt us. After all, he is called a tempter. And he can attempt to make us believe that we're in his power. But he cannot bring us down, subject us, bind us, or take control of our lives because we belong to Christ and he guards his children. 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. A genuine Christian does not deliberately, knowingly, and habitually sin. It's just not part of our DNA. Okay, next, three things we know for certain. We know we belong to God. Oh, this is, this really affected me. We know, verse 19, that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We live in this world, but we're no, no, but, but, and we were born in it, in fact. But a fundamental separation occurred when we received Jesus. We no longer have the same relationship with the world. Because the world lives under the power of the evil one. Now, we are children of God. The Greek here has the idea of source. We belong to God. We are in Christ and we are of God. We are God's children. John seventeen nine. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. We belong to God. We are of God. Ephesians 2.2. 2, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin. Just like the rest of the world obeying the devil. The commander of the powers in this unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey. John gives basically two options. Either one belongs to God or one belongs to the devil. Like I said, he... It has no shades of gray. He is black and white. Next, we also know him who is true. Verses 19 to 21. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lives in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. There it is. 
And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The key word to me here is the word true. Um, This must have driven really a knife into the heart of the Gnostics when he said true here. They arrived at their truth by experience. And this is common today. Truth is what you perceive it to be. They experienced the truth. Now, I found this next quote this week in an advice column. Now, you want advice. This is, this is the column that I got this out of. Whatever you perceive to be your truth is the only thing that's true for you. Follow your truth. That is the only truth that is natural to you. Following someone else's truth causes stress and unnecessary pain. If you have a doubt about your truth, then you have not arrived at the truth. Continue searching. Eventually, the truth will become your truth. It has no choice. Maybe you'd like to explain that to me afterwards. Because I didn't get it, you know. God, through his spirit, gives us understanding to know the real truth. John finishes once again by affirming that Jesus has come in the flesh and is indeed the true God. Then it used some phrases here. Has come. Jesus has come to earth. He's actually in a present tense. Means he's come and he's present with us. He continues to reveal himself as we read his word. Then he uses the word true. This this word means real. He's genuine. As opposed to all the false gods that are around us. He tells us to keep ourselves from idols. The same gods they worship today are still around. How about Narcissus? He's the God that fell in love with himself. (laughs) Bacchus. The God of pleasure. He was the God of wine, women, and song. Venus, the goddess of love and and sexuality. Boy, that that one is is being worshipped today. Apollo, the god of physical beauty. Minerva, the goddess of science. Now, let's remind ourselves what an idol is. Whatever you go to, to receive answers to the basic questions of life other than God. Where where do I go to get my joy, my peace, my value as a person? Then he uses one other word here, and that is no. Here we find the word ginosko in Greek, knowing by experience it refers to an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. And John finishes this fantastic book by saying we are certain that we have eternal life. We are certain that we have answered prayer. We are certain that we can live in triumphal living and victory over sin and protection from Satan and assurance that we belong to God, source, and know for certain that we know the truth. There's only one thing I can say about that. Amen. So if you're struggling or have struggled with assurance of your salvation, listen to last week's message. And then read First John slowly. Are you struggling with sin? It's time for, you know, there is a time for self-examination in the scriptures. Yeah, listen to this. First John 13, First John. 
1 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Also, read 1 John carefully. Do you believe that Satan, that, that you're under control of Satan? You know what John says? 1 John 3.8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do you want to know the truth? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You need to get to know Jesus. Is this the day to do that? I did it when I was 16. No Christian, no Christian parents, no Christian family. I became a Christian at a, uh, at a weekend retreat where I was invited to go, hopefully, hopefully to pay, play some baseball. You know, and I ended up going back as a Christian. Is this your day? I hope so. If so, come and talk to one of us. Lord, we thank you for these moments together. We really do. Lord, these moments that we can spend with you in your word are just precious. And Lord, we thank you that we know for sure we're a child of God. We can know it. We can know for sure that we can have our prayers. We can know for sure that we can know the one who is true. Oh, Lord, help each one of us today to walk in, in the type of confidence that comes from knowing Jesus in our lives. In your holy name, amen.